amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Forensic Psychology is a podcast that provides an illuminating window into the workings of the criminal mind. Now, here's your host, Dr. Carlos. Welcome, everyone. Welcome back, Mike. Well, thanks for having me. This is episode two, folks, of Serial Killer Hunter with Mike Szynski, retired detective of the Seattle Police Department. Check out the playlist. You can see the last episode. If you enjoyed this episode, you'll enjoy the last one as well as we go through some of his cases that he did in the Seattle Police Department. Today, we're going to be looking at the oldest cold case charged by the Seattle Police Department. Is that right, Mike? That's correct. It was charged in you well, was charged in the year 2004, and the case is from 1968. 1960, over 50 years ago. Yes. So tell us a little bit about this case. All right. Um, the victim, the victim in this case was a 16-year-old uh, pregnant, newly married girl. Um, she lived at 6201 14th Avenue Northwest, apartment number 203 in Seattle, at the, in the Ballard area of Seattle. Her name was Sandra Bowman. Um, her husband, Thomas Bowman, uh, was 20 years old, uh, was at work and came home after working the night shift and went into the house. Uh, seen a couple of things were a little askew. Uh, her, Purse was on the floor, dumped over, and he was just picking it up, and he thought, no, maybe she just was messy. And then he walked into the bedroom, and um, the horse started, and the horse, it was just unbelievable. There was his newly wife, newlywed wife um, on her back in the bedroom and tied up, and she had been stabbed 60 times. Oh, wow. um, her dress is pulled over her shoulders and she was tied behind her back. Uh, she had been stabbed, uh, like I say, 60 times. And she had tw uh, 48 wounds on the front and uh, 12, 12 wounds on the back, 48 on the front. And 37 of the wounds were classified as fatal. So it was, it was quite a horrific scene. Let me ask you a couple of questions. What does it say to you? First, I know the TV was still on. You said the purse was on the ground. As a detective, what is that telling you right off the get-go? Well, but seeing the purse, you know, they went through the purse. There was no money in the purse. And she only had, I think she had, because she had, she wrote a note to her husband right before she died. I'm going to bed, honey. Uh, the baby's kicking. And um, I've got $12 left over from shopping. And so... 
somebody's doing a rape or doing a murder, and they're also doing some, you know, rifling through her purse. Um, that shows a little bit that he spent a little time in the house also, besides doing the rape and stuff, going through the property and stuff. And he didn't bring a weapon with them. Uh, the drawer was open and with the knife from, and the knife was removed from there uh, that was used in the, in the murder. Where did they find the knife? It was on the floor, on the floor in the bedroom. Yes. I guess. So like I said, that was a, it was a butcher knife that was taken from the, from the kitchen, from a kitchen drawer that the drawer was open. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, looking at the FBI kind of typology, it really sounds like a disorganized killer, right? Didn't even come with the weapon. Yes. It was just kind of a random thing. Doesn't try to hide anything either. No. no yeah, nothing, was, nothing was hidden. It was just opened and done, you know, done, which, which is, uh, I say this is a, uh, well, I, I worked in my first serial murder case. I worked as a patrolman. And when you're a homicide detective, usually, you're never going to work a serial murder case. And I just happened to come along um, after the first serial murder case we did. Then I went on that worked cold case. And thank God for DNA, like all this, all departments across the country. Then all of a sudden we started working, you know, serial murders. I ended up working about 11 or 12 serial murder cases and convicting seven, which I never thought I would convict one. It wasn't anything on some great expertise on my part. It was just said, you know, thank God for DNA and um, and also good work by the previous homicide detectives that worked and held on to all the evidence. And I think you can see that like throughout the country. And the homicide work really hasn't changed all that much, except for you know the the the, the science. That was the only thing that's changed. But detectives were just regular detectives doing the regular work, running it out. For me, I guess the big thing is um, now this is a serial killer. Yes. So, well, I guess we'll be looking at the other crimes. Now, I remember you were saying this is so this is going to be another serial killer case. So, we have this first victim. Again, looks like it was a probably a crime of opportunity here. Uh, obviously, broke into the apartment. Now, he tied her up. Does this give you an indication that she might have fought back? Well, he was, I think it was just for, uh, well, he tied her up, but uh, he didn't start stabbing. He didn't, he didn't get her undressed right away. So he tied her up and then uh, because we find out she's tied up behind her back, but then her dress is pulled down, but it couldn't get over her arms. So as he pulls the dress up and takes her underwear off, pulls the dress down over her shoulders, but then couldn't get over the back. Um, it's... Later on, it showed me something also about serial murderers and what these people do. Kind of similar to what uh, one of the cases we previously talked about, you and I, about the uh, Chili Willie case. And he would, he would tie, tie up the victims, Chili would tie up his victims after he killed them. And um, you wonder, you know, why are they doing that? Well, they get into like a trance-like state, and that's what—that's part of their game of what they are doing. In this case here, um, which is, rare, you know, we, we, we were kind of amazed at whoa, how we solved the case because my partner Greg Mikesell, who was a you know a very experienced uh, detective, and I started working with him in homicide in the in the '90s, early '90s. But I became a 
this partner in just about six months before we did, we did this case. And he's the one who submitted the evidence in it. Well, when they submit, when they submitted the when he submitted the evidence and they're looking for any spermatosa inside inside of her, they couldn't find any. But then they're washing the pubic hair, uh, the victim's pubic hair, which is something they will always do. Um, and it was filled with spermatosa. Okay, so he was not inside of her, uh, penetrating her uh, when he ejaculated. But it, here it comes out, it's all over. So, but what happens with these uh, serial killers that we, we found out after I, I ended up working 11 or 12 uh, serial murder cases is um, they're going through the ritual of, you say having sex with her, but his biggest thing is that, is that he's got the knife, holding the knife up and he's thrusting it. That's what, that's the penetration he's worked up on. Stabbing, stabbing, stabbing. Stabbed, stabbed her 60 times, 60 times. And then he ejaculated outside of her, okay? So that should, that gives you the, the mindset of what these people are like, uh, what these killers are like. You're yeah. absolutely right. It's amazing. I had a conversation with a guy who's a knife expert and he's been training with knives and trained special forces with knife fighting. And I remember sharing him with him that concept that a lot of serial killers will satisfy their sexual fantasies, these perverted ones, with that exact imagery of the knife representing penetration. And it blew, it blew his mind away because it's just not something most people would think. And uh, it's amazing that you saw that in reality. And I guess the 60 times I first would think of a rage kill, but in actuality, it was more of a sexual fantasy being lived out. Yes, yeah, 60, 60 stab wounds and, the, and then to roll them over and stab them in the back. A lot of times when you see them stabbing, when you, you look on a serial murder case or, or does that be a serial murder, a stabbing type of case, when you find wounds on both sides of the bodies, um, a lot of times you'll find them in the buttocks area where they take them and they start stabbing just superficially. Like the case you and I were talked about before, the Chili Willie case. You know, here he's bleeding profusely in his hand, but he's in the he's he's stabbing her in the buttocks, you know, a dozen times until to the point where he's almost passing out because he, as we call, he stabbed himself. Uh, he cut himself when he was stabbing, which is something that is, you know, I don't think we we talked to him about that when we interviewed the suspect, John Kennedy. Uh, when you're stabbing somebody much, especially like a butcher knife, and you're getting sweaty, your hands are going to slide. No, there's no, there's no butt plate up on the, on the handle for most places. It's not like a hunting or a skinning. And so that's why we were always looking, uh, what's a classic example of uh, somebody who's uh, a famous person who got off on a case, uh, um, O.J. Simpson. <laughs> um, what happened in the O.J. case? And I was always said, I cut myself with the glass of uh, water when I th threw it down and found out what happened, you know, to my wife. Okay. Um, <laughs> We would take that into account, you know. We would we would really press him on that on that case, on that concept. Uh, but anyway, somebody with using a knife is usually going to stabbing somebody that many times is usually going to cut themselves. Almost almost always, because you got it's like you know you're you're going to hit a rib, uh, you're going to hit some kind of bone or something. Your hands are getting sweaty and you're working, and you're going to slide down the handle knife onto the blade. So that's why you're always taking the blood samples then from the bed 
and or, or for wherever you're at and looking for that we find two two signs of blood, two types of blood. Okay, so now now we know that the suspect cut himself. Now you were saying he's a serial killer. How many other victims did he have? He killed two other women. I don't have their names here, but he killed too many two other women and um, similarly similar style. You know, using a knife. And uh, do we know how far was, apart they were? Yeah, just just they're just uh, they're within one year of, of this homicide. And uh, one was in one was they're both out in in the county in 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 the same county, but outside of Seattle. Outside of Seattle. Yes. Um, so he killed three women within a course of a couple of years. Yes. And there, I think uh, the other women's names, folks, are Mary Ann Bell Vajorzen. She was 21. And then Lynn Carol Tusky, who was age 20. Yes. Um, that, uh, so I think some of the reports I was reading, he, he also strangled them. Did he strangle Sandra or was she just? Yeah, no. No, he, she was just, just yeah, we didn't find any uh, anything on her throat or anything like that. Any marks on her throat or abrasions and stuff. And he never said but that he, and he told me everything that he did to a degree. Oh, he did? Yeah. How forthcoming yeah. was he? Well, at first we went, when we, we got a, we got our lab report back. Um, and then I got it written down here with the, we had the DNA typing profile obtained uh, from the pubic hair rinse sample. And um, it said it came from a single male source and matched the DNA typing profile of John Kennedy. The estimated probability of selecting an unrelated individual at random from the US population with a matching profile is one in one quadrillion. So I think we had the right guy. <laughs> One in one quadrillion? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think so. Yeah, that's, that's, that's more times than the Earth's population, you know, like 10 times. Um, so getting him, um, but, but as happens, when I found out later, more later, when I did more uh, serial murder cases and, uh, and going to the prisons, this prison was in uh, our state prison, uh, Walla Walla. And... Um, and he's been in prison for 30 years from the time I went and talked to him, my, myself and the detective myself. And uh, they're kind of like, you know, they're the old guys in prison. So, you know, they got it. You know, they got a good, a good gig going for themselves. You know, they got the best jobs, best jobs in there. People come there and talk to them. They ask advice and they get along with everybody. They don't want their routine changed a bit. And nor did he when we confronted with him. And we said, because we said, we want to talk to you about this homicide that was in you know, 1968, you know, December 17th. Well, I, that's 30 years ago. I might have to remember that. Something that I learned later from working so many serial murder cases and um, well, old homicides also, not just every serial murder cases, they remember everything, especially serial murderers. They remember everything. Like he did, he remembered to call the what the drapes, the color of the drapes were, uh, where he cut the cord uh, on the, the, the hanging up on the curtains. How many years after the murder was that? Yeah, it was 30 years. 30 years later? 30, 30 years later, yeah. Wow. It actually was 30, 36 years later. And uh, they, all they do, they relive, they relive this all the time. 
And that's why you see, see there are serial murders, like when you and I talked before about like uh, Chili Willy, um, they get better at what they're doing also usually. Uh, sometimes they're sloppy, sometimes they're not. Sometimes they'll, they start bringing, see this a lot with serial rapists also. You look at their rape kits that they bring in. They're bringing a mask, they're bringing duct tape, they're bringing something to, to, gag, to, to gag the victims with, to, to tie the victims up and the weapons that they're going to use. They'll bring, sometimes bring for themselves, they bring Vaseline with them. Um, they just, they usually get better and better and that's all they ever think about. So when I started talking to uh, Dwight Kennedy about this case, you know, at first he, he picked up his hands and he said, he said, uh, I can't remember that. I can't remember what was going on, you know, back back then. Um, I said, oh, you really can't? You sure you can't? No, how am I going to think about that? And he said, uh, so then we explained a few things about the DNA. He said, well, things can only get worse for me. It looks like you're the type of guy who would make things worse for me. He goes, yeah. He raised his hand like this. All right. Yeah, I killed her. I said, okay, you know, my partner, Greg, Mike Sell, he's just kind of sitting back to me because one of us, one of us would do the interview and the other one take the notes. And um, Greg just kind of gave me the nod and stuff. And so then I said, okay, let's talk about this. And he laid it, he told us everything that happened. He explained you know, how he got in the house. He just knocked on the door, she opened the door, he bum rushed the door, got her inside there, took her into the bedroom, um, cut the cord and uh, tied her up. Um, that was an apartment complex too, right? Yes, it was, on the, it was the second floor, uh, room number 208, 203. So, did anybody was, hear anything out there? Yes, a couple of neighbors, and I'm you know, reading these old reports, and the people said there's an old couple who lived next door. And they could hear this stuff roughing. They thought they heard a scream in a male voice, then they didn't hear anything. They said, you know, the walls are paper thinner, but you hear everything. And they're just listening, and then they don't they don't go out on you know like some old people aren't they're not going to go over and hear somebody screaming, and they know that the husband, uh, it's the woman's married, so they, I don't know if they think that's the husband. And there's a domestic dispute or not, and when the husband came home, um, Thomas Bowman came home and discovers his newlywed wife, you know, is is you know murdered. You know, he's in a panic. He doesn't touch anything. He runs next door and he's banging on, banging on a door. And, and the guy's saying, oh, this, you know, let me in, let me in. You know, my wife's been murdered. Enough. And they're saying, no, go away, go away. You know, they're, they're freaked out. There's no way they're opening up the door. Sure. You know, at 12.30 you know, at night. You know. And so he goes to another door and they, they finally let him in. And he calls the police up. And the police come. Kind of a, then he explains what happens when the police come and the homicide, you know, everybody's coming now, the homicide, sergeant, lieutenant, captain, uh, all the detectives are working the case, you know, this horrific crime scene. And what do you, what do you usually think when you get these kind of homicides, you know? Who done it? Who's, who's the guy? It's usually the husband, you know, or, or the lover or something like that, you know? Um, like, or like all these cases where in our, the seven-year-old girl goes missing or something, that's in you go, and you see the newspaper reports, and now they're now talking to the wife, you know, and and there's her uh, boyfriend staying there, you know, you know, oh yeah, and they're in the trailer park and stuff. And a little while later, you're, oh yeah, well, it's the, it's the boyfriend who did it. Yeah, oh, you have like Scott did. Peterson and Chris Watts, right? Yeah. Always, always, always. So it's in the back of these minds of these detectives, you know, what they're thinking. They're thinking, oh yeah, okay, you. Well, just happens to be that 
Sandra's uncle was a homicide sergeant. And so now these cops, they're leaning on them hard. And I wouldn't doubt back in the day, I don't have any proof of this, but you know, Tom said they worked me pretty good. So what did that mean? You know, did they work him over or get him to talk and stuff, talking about the husband? Don't know. He goes, but they're on me all, all the time. They're thinking he did he did this murder. And he stuck to his guns and he didn't, didn't do it. And so this case went on for quite a while investigating. I was looking through the file and it was months and months and months and months later. You know, the case went to another detectives and another detectives. And they are still working the case. But what happens, like in, in like many cases, when you're working a serial case, which I, you know, later found out myself when I worked the case you and I talked about, you know, the Chili Willie case, I had other cases come up. You know, my turn came up in rotation. I had to go out to, a, to another homicide, investigate that homicide, or I had to process a scene for other detectives. So you're just, you're always working. It's like everything, like you see on television, where everything just stops and you just work this one case. Now, in, in cold case, I was working, same thing. I was working a whole bunch of cases at the same time, you know, looking at it, and I would solve them five years later, maybe, after submitting evidence and getting DNA evidence. Um, so when we get the match, when my partner and I get the match on this, uh, and we go to prison, now we go to Walla Walla, our state prison, and we interview the suspect, uh, Kennedy, and he confesses, okay, uh, now we got to, now we have to call, find the husband. So we were looking all over for uh, Tom and Thomas Bowman. And crazy as may seem, he's in Walla Walla also, but he wasn't in the prison. He was in the city and he was a police officer. He was a sergeant on the Walla Walla Sheriff's Office. And we call him up and he said, well, we told him what happened. And um, he said, I always had a feeling that he'd probably be in here. And we took him, then he talked at the, after our suspect uh, pled guilty, Thomas Bowman, um, Thomas, uh, I mean, after you know, Thomas talked after Kennedy uh, confessed and he talked at the sentencing and he said, uh, we should, you know, I remember his a couple of things I think he says we should use a death penalty or just get rid of it. You know, I don't know why we're not getting you know, this guy who's killed three women. And uh, but he said, I I contemplated because people thought I did the murder. He goes, I contemplated committing suicide, but I thought if I do that, if I do that, they'll say, aha, yeah, he's the guy who killed his wife. He felt guilty about it. So he goes, so I never did that. And um, so after we uh three pled guilty. And he was sentenced again, you know, to, you know, life in prison again, where he was not going to be, you know, that's what he was going to be doing the rest of his life in prison anyway. And uh, we had the note, we had the note in our hand that Sandra wrote to him. Tom, I'm, the baby's kicking, I'm going to bed, I went shopping, I got $5 left over, love you, Sandra. And we're thinking about, we should, should we walk over, should we drive over next time, Walla Walla, and go and have dinner with him and stuff, give him the letter and stuff. Uh, the original, no, we're not going to need any more. And at that time, our victim, the advocate, walked into the room, and she had a teletype from the Walla Walla Sheriff's Office. And the tel we looked at the teletype and read it and said, uh, Thomas Bowman um, died of a heart attack today. 
And we're like, holy smokes. So well, we said, well, at least he died happy, we're hoping. We talked to his wife. And his wife said, you wouldn't believe the difference he was, the difference in him after you solved that case. He was, he was like, he's, he, was out, he was out jogging, matter of fact, when he died of the heart attack. Oh, wow. She goes, he was, you know, he was 67 years old, but he was in good straight shape and stuff. And, uh, but he just, just was ecstatic almost over the, uh, over where this happened. I was, you know, solving this case of his wife and, and baby, you know, unborn baby. And uh, she goes, he was freer. He just was like, it was just amazing how it, how it, how it happened like that. And so it, it, that's, that's a reason why, that's another reason why we do these cases that are 50, 60 years old. Maybe, you know, the victim's family, they're all that. In this case here, Sandra's parents were already dead and siblings were and, uh, her husband happened to still be alive, but in many of these cases, everybody's deceased. And um, but that's why we still do those cases, and uh, that's why there is, you know, in homicide. We'll search these cases no matter how old they are, and try to get some solvability out with, from them. And so this this case was it, it really kind of hit home to us, uh, to my partner and I. Um, that here all of a sudden now, you know, the victim's dead, the case is solved. Now the, the husband who was, people looked at as a suspect all the time, but wasn't, and then he dies. Um, so then we just go on and go on with our job. That's the amazing thing about homicide detectives people don't really realize. I, you know, we do a couple of shows. We have yours, we have the Unsolved Murder Show. And now as I see these, and I also do a podcast called Cold Cases Solved. Um, so I want to see the other side of these kind of success stories. But what I've learned doing these, even myself now, as many cops as I've known over the years in law enforcement, I never really felt it like I've had doing these podcasts for two months, how involved you folks become in these cases, because it really, you become part of them and their families. A lot of times you get to know them. I mean, one detective said, Every year he goes and celebrates this family's six-year-old who was murdered um, and they celebrate a birthday together. It's really amazing. Yeah, I worked, you know, working homicide for as long as I did. I, you know, before, before I retired in 2017, um, usually when you go to homicide, you usually stay in homicide unless you're promoted out of there. Once in a rare thing, you guys will transfer out for, for whatever reason. I worked uh, homicide for 22 years, um, which is probably too long. And, and uh, I was going to try to retire a couple of years beforehand, but circumstance, I just kept kept working. And um, but that was that was way that was way too long to be, be a policeman. I was because I was a policeman for 37 years. And um, but you don't. I would say you don't get burned out doing the homicide work. Uh, I know detectives that get burned out more who are doing, you know, that we're checks, forgery squad, you know, or working burglary or working arson, you know. But homicide was always so, you know, we were always, we were number one. We were so busy all the time. And um, and then when we got the cold case and then, like, say, working all the serial murder case when DNA came around, thank goodness, um, then we were really flying. And um, I worked with a couple of good guys, you know, I worked with uh, 
that uh, Mike Sell was a, was a great partner. He was, you know, he was, you know, very, very educated in in, uh, in murder investigations. He was he was great. And um, another guy I worked with was was my was my detective in homicide, in regular homicide, Dick Gagnon, before he transferred to the cold case unit. And then I took I ended up taking his spot. And then he, he later uh, he died a few years ago also. But um, it's just it, it's an interesting job working cold case. It's it's a different job. Like say a lot of times I'm I'm submitting evidence and I'm working a case that I will I will I will solve four five years later. <laughs> Find out you know okay the, this evidence that I submitted um, finally popped up. And uh, the DNA popped up, and the guy happened to be in prison the whole time. Or a guy just got released from prison. That's another case we'll do for one of the other shows. A guy got released, and uh, why haven't they let him go? They, they put his DNA in the system, even though he was 80 years old. And bing, bing, bing. Yeah, he did, <laughs> he did a homicide. Well, he did numerous homicides, but he did a homicide in 1971. And uh, so I got to go talk to him when he's out of prison. You know, that was, that was another job, another case. But uh, uh, DNA. DNA uh, sure helps, sure helps, but it's not the cure for all. You know, it's there's, there's still like gotta you gotta gotta get a lot of questions answered, and going and doing the interviewing them, you get better at it every time you do it. Just like the serial killers get better every time they kill somebody. But um, I learned a lot from my partners, and and then eventually I I end up uh, myself because of the science. Uh, becoming an expert on uh, serial murderers. And I don't think there was anything great about myself that I did, which is that it just happened that the science allowed me to interview all these serial murderers and go to prison. But that's the name of the game. Go to prison, uh, go to and interview them. Interview them, interview them, interview them. And uh, sometimes you got to wear them down. Um, like you and I talked about in the first, in that Chili Willie case. And, um, that was like three weeks later. Every every single day, I'm going with this crazy guy talking to him all the time, um, which he was completely crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because I know this guy Canaday. I know we're getting ready to wrap up. We've been just comparing him to Chili Willie, but it's not the cartoon. Um, John Canada, he was married before. I think he had two yes. kids, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, he attributed the and murders to anger or something. I would, I would love to talk. To, you know, you know, you, you, once once they say once he throws his hands up, say, yeah, I killed her. I did. You know, he kind of chuckles in a way. You know, it's like yeah, you, you kind of want to lean over there and thank goodness you might lean over and kind of crack him one. But um, but now your job is to get you know okay what happened. Get you know get a detailed a detailed statement from him and question him about it and. Which we which we want to do because we want to get a, a fake confession. Which I I ended up getting a fake confession one time from uh, this guy who's still alive. He's ninety four years old and um, serial murderer, um, which we'll talk about another time. But um, so you want to get as much detail as you can. But what is really amazing about that, like we we talked about before, is how they can remember this so vividly. But we all we all can remember things that happened to us. You know, 30, 40 years things that are traumatic to all, all of us, you know, if we were involved in a car accident or, or like for a policeman that were involved in a shooting or something like that. Um, 
you can remember, you know, little bits about it. And then every after, but after every year, a little bit leaves you, a little bit leaves you. This is all these guys think about serial murders. This is, they think about this 24 seven, all the time, all the time. And he's coming out, he's telling me what color the drapes were, where he cut the cords from and where he got the knife from I and mean, going through her purse and stuff. How, how would you remember that? Especially when you killed two other people and you're, you've been in, in, in prison for 37 years. That's just, that's just something that we did learn about through DNA. So when all, whenever I interview these guys and um, going forward from that point on and all the other serial murders that I investigated, when they were saying, oh, you're, you're asking me something that happened 10 years ago, I can't remember that. And I'd call BS on it. No, let's go back <laughs> bit more and start talking about it then sure enough they they lay it all out they tell me what they're wearing what the victim was wearing where they where they threw where they threw her clothes um so they do they do remember them very very well i guess uh, at least on my end i'll end on this note for myself um the judge had some powerful words and i think it, it, it encompasses a lot of these crimes and he said, the horror of your crimes are beyond words, said Judge Jones at the time. But he said this part, which stands out to me, which is, trust me, the mother and the husband of your victim have also been sentenced to life by, why, by what you have done. That's the part a lot of people don't realize, too. Right. right. And, uh, you know, something else, it's, it's, it's always curious, or not curious, but it's, it's you know, I, I go in for when I'm doing the, we're doing the sentencing uh, number one, a lot of these guys, they want to, they, well, I'm guilty. They just want to get back to the prison. You know, they want to get to their normal, to their normal life. They want to get back into the prison system, say goodbye. Because what happens, you take them out of, out of prison and you put them in the county jail and that's where they, they're arraigned and they have to stay there for two weeks, three weeks. And that's one of our selling points. We're, we're going to get you in and out, get you back and stuff like this after we take your confession, all this kind of stuff. No, they're happy about this. I had one guy uh, who he wasn't going to talk to me, but after he was in jail, in the county jail for a couple of weeks, and they brought him from the judge, he goes, oh, I'm going to plead guilty. I want to plead guilty because he wanted to get back. He wanted to get back to the friendly confines of the state prison. No, 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 no. We had his DNA. We said, no, you're going to, you know, we're going to wrap this. You're not going to just plead guilty just because and then think, well, I didn't do it. I just... I just wanted to plead guilty just to, you know, let, let everything fly, you know, just to get back. No, 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 it's not going to happen that way. But um, the point that I was trying to make is, though, um, there's not very many people in the courtroom. It's not like uh, when you have a fresh homicide or a homicide has happened, now you got the victim's family, you have some of the suspect's family, you have the media there and stuff. We may have some media there. We may have, you know, there may be four or five people in, in, the, in the room. In this, uh, in this thing here, we, you know, we had the victim's husband in there reading a statement, but uh, there probably was just a half a dozen people inside there in a, in a case like this. So that's, it's kind of sad, but you, you don't want to ever forget these people, especially a young girl like this. Absolutely not. And, and again, you highlighted the key point earlier, when the cold cases get solved, it makes a big difference. It really does. Absolutely. Thank you again for taking the time, Mike. We truly appreciate it. Carlos, thank you very much. It's always nice being on your show. I, I appreciate you. Hey, this is your show. This is the network. Uh, <laughs> yeah. 
Folks, again, serial killer hunter detective Mike Szynski. Uh, definitely yes, check out his playlist. Oh. Book. And by the way, and by the way, folks, you can also get Mike's book, Seattle's Jungle Killer. It's a fascinating story again of another homicide that he worked on, serial killer that he solved. Detective Szynski, thanks again. Thank you very much, Doctor. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Make sure to share and subscribe to support our podcast. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com.